0: Sorry I can't say much about traveling as a person from generation X since I'm from generation Y. So yeah it would be interesting to
1: hear someone.
0: Hello, and thank you for downloading. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture, and the whys behind travel itself. So join me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. Hello. Before we start, a subtweet. All. All, all the things she said. All. 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 Oliver. All. Al. Al, you can call me Al. Al. This lesson in pronunciation was brought to you by Italian Western Australia, the capital of the US state of New York, and a dukedom in England, after whom many pubs are named after. And a conversation on Twitter I had a couple of days ago, about how to pronounce them all. So, how are you all this week? The weather here seems to have faded a bit, which makes no odds if you're not going out in it, but it makes a change to look out my window and see damp on the cement path leading to the back gate rather than sunshine. But then, of course, I remember when I first moved to Sheffield about ten podcasts ago and kept making comments about the endless storms that seemed to be hitting pretty much every weekend. In a sense, the virus hit about a month late. Had we had it full on in February, it would have been far less effective because people simply wouldn't have gone out as much. There's talk of loosening the lockdown here at some point soon, whilst still maintaining the social distancing rules, but I don't really see that being viable. Unless you want more people to die, obviously. I don't know. There's still a lot of the virus about here and while the death toll is Peking we're nowhere near on top of it like they are in other countries I still feel we're a couple of months away from that. It's not like we have a particularly strong lockdown anyway compared to other countries. I'm not sure what the British government would do if they came across a situation where death was inevitable if you caught it, like a zombie outbreak for instance. Mind you, they've closed all the pubs so there's no way of going to the Winchester having a nice cold pint and waiting for all of this to blow over. I do have a decent selection of beer though, as I mentioned last week about my recent delivery. It's mostly 7-8% to double IPAs, and what I've been noticing is that as I've been drinking less, the beer I am drinking is going to my head much easier, making me less inclined to have a second one in a session anyway. So the cycle of drinking less beer repeats. Sort of the opposite of alcoholism, which is a good thing. And I'm recording this whilst having a can of 7.4% New England IPA, and it's going down quite well. Whether I have another one or not, who knows. I went for another run on Sunday morning. I figured that of all the days of the week Sunday would be the least busy so a good time to take a different route and run through the centre of Sheffield which I figured would be pretty empty. And it was. Although jogging down the tram lines along West Street didn't feel quite as weirdly apocalyptic as I'd imagined it just felt like a Sunday morning when everything was shut. In the suburbs, though, I did see quite a few people milling around, including me and three other joggers converging at almost exactly the same time around a corner at Hunter's Bar, which was awkward, and a nice lady in a car by the university who was worried about my running barefoot and wondered if I was in trouble and did I want her to give me a lift to somewhere safe. Ironically, I'd just tweaked my calf muscle, again, about 100 metres further down the road, so I was briefly limping and doing some stretching, so the idea was tempting. But social distancing, you know. And anyway, just like last time but a stretching and a section of walking did me fine, and I got home perfectly fine, including running a bit for the last bit, and my jogging style may have changed, but it didn't hurt, and I was still walking the next day, so it obviously wasn't too terminal. But I haven't run since, because, you know, I don't want to push it. I am slightly concerned about my leg muscle doing this, has to be said. I suspect it's because I am pushing too hard on the hills for too long, I have to remember that I'm still getting back into this running lock and, you know, Sheffield is quite hilly, so I need to build up a lot more slowly than I am. Often the trouble is though, once I'm out on the road, I'm enjoying it, so I naturally want to do as much as I can. I am quite impatient. I need to work on that. Maybe I should do more yoga. We briefly mentioned yoga on the PT travel chat quiz we were having last night, and in response to something someone said, I said, You've got to be kidding me and then had to tap out the chat for about a minute because I was laughing too much. Not, you understand, at the joke, because, well, it wasn't really that funny, but mostly in the fact that I couldn't believe I'd actually said something so quite dreadful. As I've stated many times, on many occasions, I am not a comedian, and this is why. Over the last couple of days, I've been finally knuckling down to make myself a bit more, hmm, employable. Obviously, this hasn't extended to wearing shoes yet, because I've rarely been outside. Rather, with the help of a couple of good friends, I've been honing my CV, making lists of what I'm specifically good at and interested in, and have returned to LinkedIn. Which seem to be full of banking jobs right now, which doesn't really appeal to me, I have to say. I generally find staying awake during the working day is an advantage. My friend Kate Frankie has suggested I try and find work in organisations like charities, something that will make a difference and appeal to my more political tastes, but of course that requires there being roles available. Speaking of political tastes, I've spent the first part of this week writing blog posts about my trip to Southern Africa in January 2016. I've mentioned before about how I don't really see that, even if no one can travel right now, talking and writing about travel has to stop, but partly this is driven by the fact that I'm not really a travel blogger. I talk about place in terms of history and culture, more generic things. Even if there had been no virus and we were free to travel, I'd still be posting about this trip now. Well, I mean, let's be honest, I probably wouldn't have gotten round to it and it would have, you know, just stayed in my to-do list like it has been since uh, January 2016, actually. But you know what I mean. Essentially, the things I write are just as true now as they were when I visited. I've been touching on deep and meaningful topics like colonialism, lost civilizations and how the Gow train from Pretoria to Johannesburg feels a bit like stepping into a rather posh fridge. This week, though, it's been mainly about apartheid in South Africa, and while that's a huge and emotive topic and not the subject of this podcast, although it may be a subject of a podcast later on, I haven't decided yet, it is weird just how much I'm learning that, even though I lived through part of it, albeit a hemisphere away, I guess I never knew. Apartheid in a nutshell, was legalised racist complete segregation of blacks, whites and uh, coloureds. Coloureds being everybody else who wasn't black or white. And their way of determining what you were was uh, equally dodgy, shall we say. But my tidbit of learning this week was in the 1970s, South Africa had a Prime Minister with the great name of Balthazar Vorster, who during the Second World War had been a rising and effectual member of the South African equivalent of the Nazi Party, which isn't too much of a stretch given apartheid. This is not the tidbit. The tidbit is that it turns out that some people in the country weren't happy with him and set up a military-style organisation to protect themselves from him called the AWB. And they did this because they thought Vorster was too liberal and left-wing and pandering to the blacks too much. There we go. A genuine Nazi was considered too liberal. I've concluded that white South Africans in the apartheid era were generally a strange and unappealing bunch. As an aside... I may also have reaffirmed that humans in general are possibly, like Manchester, quite often beyond hope. Hmm. This podcast has taken a turn for the deep and we're only a few minutes in. Let's reel it all back in and go back to the subject in hand, which is whether your style of travel changes depending on your age. I didn't quite manage to explain the concept very well, so I don't have many contributions from other people, but I'm hopeful that the pod itself will launch some debate afterwards. In a way, it follows on a bit from the Travel Hopes podcast about three weeks ago. There's a bit of a stereotype around travel at different ages that goes something like this. When you're fresh out of college, you go backpacking. You stay in hostels or dorms of up to 26 people. You try to be as cheap-ass as you can, taking the local transport or even hitchhiking, giving you more money to spend on drinks and food and partying. Then, you get a bit older and go, I'm still young, I still have all the world to see, but let's see the important stuff first. Let's go to the places that everybody raves about. You have coffee in a Paris cafe overlooking the Eiffel Tower. You take a selfie in front of the Sydney Opera House. You get pickpocketed Old Las Ramblas in Barcelona. You tick off things off other people's bucket lists because, well, you can and you feel you're supposed to. You go to all the famous places that everybody else is going to because, well, they're famous and they're worth visiting. And don't get me wrong, there's absolutely nothing wrong with this. I feel that there's a sense of snobbery amongst some travel bloggers. A feeling of, oh, you've only been to, in certain number of countries... Or, oh, I went there and it's full of tourists and hugely overpriced. There's nothing at all wrong with the desire to seek out the road less travelled. To visit places no one does. Although, if you're only doing it for the show-off factor, that does make me raise an eyebrow. I mean, hi, do you know me? Some of the countries I've been to, I have friends that can't even spell them, never mind find them on the map. But equally, I've never been to Magaluf or Ibiza. I have been to Benidorm and it was exactly how I imagined it to be. I'll go back one day. But I go to these less-known places because there's something there that drives me to see them. I have an interest in something specifically. I don't go there simply because nobody else does. Indeed, some of them, I really wonder why they're so infrequently visited, like Benin, for instance. It's a stable country with decent transport, good culture, history, scenery. It's like Southeast Asia, but with fewer temples. Well, actually, in Benin's, and indeed the whole of West Africa's case, I pretty much know why young white backpackers don't go there. The clue is in one of those three adjectives. But, returning to the point, some places are popular for a reason. Yes, walking through the streets of somewhere like Dubrovnik, seeing the temples of Angkor, or standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon, is going to put you in a crowded space where people are jostling, looking, getting in the way. And yes, you won't get the experience that you imagine you will in your fantasies, unless you do this at 7am on a wet October morning. But the fact remains, lots of the really popular places are worth visiting are worth seeing because they're spectacular settings, they're amazing feats of engineering and architecture, or they're a unique example of something and therefore you can't see it anywhere else. Ticking off bucket lists itself is no bad thing. It only becomes a bad thing if the only reason to visit somewhere is to tick it off a bucket list. Except Stonehenge. This is an Iron Age hillfoot I'm willing to dye myself blue and wave a spear on. Yes, it's probably the best example of a prehistoric stone circle, but it's not like it's the only one. Avebury's just down the road and has an entire village set inside it, for instance. And it's free. Anyway, then you reach an age where you have a steady job. You have more money to travel, but less time and opportunity to do so. So your trips become shorter. And depending on your lifestyle and family situation, they may involve resorts rather than hostels, beaches rather than adventure breaks, wine tasting rather than tequila shots. Ugh, tequila. That, Dr Pepper, Dandelion and Burdock and coffee are my four worst drinks. Don't at me. And then you hit old age, empty nesters, retirement beckons, cruising becomes popular, a leisurely and stress-free way to see a lot of the world without having to spend much time in it, and where someone else is doing all of the admin work so you don't have to. Or country breaks in small self-catering cottages, effectively holidaying home from home, same life, different scenery. Bucket lists tend to become redundant, the only item is to enjoy yourself while you still can. How much of this is relatable? One person who talked to me about the way their travel has changed over time is Alexi from Travelex. I would
1: say that the way I travel has changed a little bit over the years. Um, when I was younger, I think I prioritised the social aspect of travelling a little bit more. So staying in hostels and meeting people and, and going out was a little bit more of a priority to me than it is now for sure. Uh, I also think that I have sort of discovered the things that I really enjoy doing and I sort of gear a lot of my trips towards that. So hiking uh, and being as active as possible is something that I've sort of started seeking out, whereas before it was just kind of something that I would maybe do
0: on a lot of trips, but I wouldn't necessarily plan my trips around those activities He follows a pattern that I suspect is quite common amongst people, as you hear he started out being a typical party traveller, but then as he aged he tended to travel more for specific interest things. I believe one of the important factors around travel at different ages is that your tastes change. It's not just the case of having different hobbies and interests at different ages, but also that your entire knowledge base changes too. There may be things that you discover you find really fascinating, but the first time you ever heard about them was at the age of 25, or 33, or 59, who knows? So... Once you find a new niche interest, your travels may well change to take them into account. Like, one day you're browsing Twitter and see a tweet from a travel blogger posting a link to something about Kiribati, and you go, oh, I've never heard of there, and you look into it, and then become obsessed about going there. Or you're travelling around Belgium and try a local beer because you've heard all about it, and then three years later you realise every place you've been to since has always involved a brewery tour. Related to this, of course, is the aspect of time itself. Now... You may find you have an interest in something that simply did not exist when you were younger, or which were impossible to do then. In my case, some of my passions are related to what you might call dark history, those times in history where people generally haven't been very, uh, shall we say, appropriate, either with other people or to the natural environment. One of the places I want to visit in the future is Rwanda to pay my respects to those that were killed in the genocide of the mid-1990s, which hadn't happened when I first travelled abroad, so it would never have occurred to me to visit. Similarly, as I said, I'm writing blog posts currently about South Africa, and while I was there, I took a tour of Soweto. Growing up, doing that would have been absolutely unthinkable. No doubt there are similar things happening now that you'd never previously thought of. My mother was concerned when I visited Cambodia in 2012, as I think she still thinks the Khmer Rouge are in power. Mind you, my mother also asked me the other day what the difference was between my blog and my podcast. Somehow, I think the chances of her signing up to my Patreon are statistically insignificant. Someone else who talked to me about the way that their travels have changed is Amanda, host of the Thoughtful Travel Pod, who affirms some of the stereotypes mentioned earlier.
1: So I think the question of whether you travel differently at different ages is an interesting one, and I guess I need to start by saying I'm 43 as I record this, so that's my perspective at the moment. So I think how you travel differently is... Over the different ages is kind of a function of a few things, a function of your budget and how that might change, how risk averse you are, uh, whether you have family, especially if you're a parent, uh, and your physical ability, I guess, um, as you get older. So budget, obviously when I was younger, I didn't have much of a budget or I was trying to save, you know, to buy a house and do all those grown up things. So I would, uh, you know, happily stay in the very cheapest, you know, horriblest place. And that was fine. These days I'm still pretty, um, pretty stingy. I don't like to spend much, but you know, I will spend a bit more because I have a bit more. Uh, How risk averse I am has changed heaps uh, I don't know if that's age or if it's connected to the, the next point of mine as to becoming a parent. So that seems to me when that really changed a lot. I'm much more risk averse now that I'm the mother of a, of a son. Uh, whether he's with me or not, I'm risk averse. Like Even if I'm traveling solo, I don't take risks that I would have taken before I became a parent. Uh, but maybe how risk averse you are does change as you age anyway. I'm not sure. Um, and physical ability... I mean, I'm still physically able to do pretty much everything. So that's, um, you know, something that I haven't had to come up against too much yet. But I imagine when I'm older, I might. Uh, But one thing is that, you know, I'm in my 40s. I've had a few back problems over the years and I wouldn't sleep in some of the really, really uncomfortable places that I slept when I was in my 20s. Certainly not for more than a night and only if I really had to because I know I'll wake up stiff and sore. So, so, you know, even that makes a difference.
0: She brings up an interesting point, that of being risk-averse. There's a belief that the older you get, possibly for the family-related reasons she goes into, the more risk-averse you get. When you're young, free and single, the idea of travelling solo around the world, meeting people in hostels and going out with them on a whim, crashing on people's sofas, but also having more adventurous experiences like bungee jumping, whitewater rafting and the like, all seem really appealing, possibly even a way to challenge your natural youthful exuberance. Yet the older you get, the way you get your adrenaline rushes changes. You rarely see people like me throwing themselves off bridges with pieces of elastic tied to their ankles. I mean, that sort of thing does go on, but usually behind locked doors in nondescript buildings at the back end of industrial streets at 1am. And they're not bridges, but made of the same kind of solid iron riveting. And it's not elastic, but suede and hemp. Don't ask me how I know this, just accept that I do. Side note, you already know I have an aversion to bungee. I've had an aversion to bungee even when I was a bright young thing. That doesn't mean we don't take risks, of course. It's just that those risks are less edgy and aren't as catastrophic when we fail – Some of us do multi-day hikes and climb mountains, of course, but others find they get their adrenaline rush from going to the hardware store without a shopping list or trying a new pizza topping instead of a burger. I may be being slightly sarcastic, but I'd argue the truth is there somewhere. It's related to how people, when they get older and have a family, etc., naturally tend towards a more traditional life outlook. They become more conservative in nature. They get very insular and focused on their family wrath and casting fears to the wind and going with the flow. Me... I've always been a bit of an outlier. Because I don't have a family unit, nor any dependents, I've never had that mentality change, so in my head I've tended to travel the way I always have. That doesn't mean my interests and my style haven't changed over that time, but certainly the 24-year-old me who went on an interrail trip around Spain, Portugal and Morocco in 2000 with his then-fiancé would mostly relate to the 44-year-old me who went on an interrail trip around most of Europe in 2019, mostly solo. In fact, I suspect the 24-year-old me might decry the 44-year-old me as being too sociable. Before I rattle on about some ways I've changed and yet stayed the same, I want to bring in Amanda again to talk about something she's noticed about comparing travel in the past with travel now. We're at a similar age and both solidly within Generation X, also known as the forgotten generation because people tend to forget we exist, and the don't blame us, blame our parents, and just give us the wine and we'll leave you alone generation and her first travel experiences were at a similar time to mine
1: if i think about what it's like to travel as a as a gen xer i think i think my thoughts will make me sound even older than i am but you know i'm well and truly a gen x and i don't get the whole obsession with selfies and the full on going to instagrammable places and all of that maybe i never will but to me it seems like I don't know. It's like, I want to go there just because someone else Instagrammed a shot there. That doesn't make it appeal to me. So that's part of it. And I think I'm also kind of wistful and longing for the pre-internet days. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the internet and all of the possibilities it's opened up for me. Uh, My life would be completely different and I wouldn't even be able to do the work I do if it didn't uh, exist. But having the internet makes some parts or many parts of traveling kind of cheating and I remember back in my early days of travel so kind of 20 plus years ago or around 20 years ago uh, the internet existed but at a very small scale and there were no smartphones and it certainly was nothing like it is today and I would occasionally go to an internet cafe to kind of be in touch with home but that's about it and it was just so much more adventurous because, you know, I'd land in a city or a new town or a new country and I wouldn't have anywhere to stay and, you know, there was no way to kind of easily look it up. I'd have to ask around or carry a physical guidebook and it just led to more interesting things happening and and in some ways kind of more time, quote unquote, wasted because I'd be wandering around a place looking for somewhere to stay or looking for something to do. But that's not wasted time because you get to know a place just by wandering. Whereas these days, you know, you've got all the information just in your hand, in your smartphone. And it's kind of, it's all too easy to look stuff up and find information and book things on the fly. And, you know, it's all very convenient, but I guess I just miss the good old days. And I probably sound like a great, great grandparent by saying that, but that's life.
0: Ignoring my trip to Ireland in nineteen ninety-two to visit a pen pal, which was a very strange experience, my first adventure of the type that I tend to do now was as early as ninety-four, when, as a nineteen-year-old broke university student, I traveled across Europe to meet a pen pal in the safe bit of war-torn Yugoslavia. In a way, that trip was similar to how most nineteen-year-olds travel, apart from the war-torn Yugoslavia bit. But what's important here is to see how much of this style I still do. So let's see: overnight coach, tick. I mean, it was Eurolines rather than Flixbus, but same principles, including the brake cable failing on the way back. Trains. Tick. Including the overnight one from Budapest to Belgrade and back a week later. This thus includes cheap overnight stays, so tick tick. This was so budget it went beyond hostel accommodation. Two overnight transports in a row. Twice. Fast paced travel. Tick. I spent only a few hours in both Budapest and Bratislava on my way through, but long enough to see... stuff. Although it has to be said that on the way back in Bratislava, I had a large number of hours, but it was on a Sunday afternoon. And a Sunday afternoon in Bratislava in 1994 wasn't the most exciting place in the world. Food. Burley ate on the journey to preserve cash. Also, didn't want to speak to the shopkeepers because social anxiety, and I don't speak Hungarian, or Slovak, or Serbian, or German. Tick. Looking back, I've no idea how I even had the courage to do it. Evidently younger me was much braver than I gave him credit for. My trips over the following 15 years were, by and large, similar in the respect of trying to ensure cheap travel, being meagre on food, and going from place to place fairly quickly. This includes the interrail trip in the year 2000, where we may not have spent more than one night in any one location, and a couple of trips around the USA meeting friends and net pals where I tended to crash on people's sofas. What is interesting, though, is that in those days I was much less keen on hostels and dorm accommodation. I was much more insular and private. I didn't like having to share my space with someone I didn't know, and I didn't like the idea of people being anywhere around me while I was still asleep. This meant I tended to stay in private rooms in guest houses. It also meant when I did a tour trip of China in 2002... A couple of those nights we had were on trains, overnight trains, and we had effectively bunk accommodation. And I did not sleep that first night on that train because I was too worried about all the people passing by on the aisle that was in pure view. We weren't actually, there was no separation between the bunk beds and the aisle. So everyone could see us sleeping and we could see everyone passing. And I just stayed awake all night because I just didn't like the idea of being asleep while so many people around could see me. I am very strange, yes. What changed that, I think, was simply travelling around more expensive countries, let's be honest. I mean, my iconic solo travel experience, the one that pretty much launched the travel personality that later became the barefoot backpacker, was a three week jaunt around Southeast Asia in spring twenty twelve, when I was thirty six years old. As the region is generally pretty cheap for a Brit, I was comfortable staying in guest houses and hostels for around eight to fifteen pounds a night, because it was much cheaper than it would have been back at home. I'd probably still consider this, to be honest, although my forays since into the region, in Timor-Leste in Bali and Philippines, have pretty much mostly been in dorms, even there. Conversely, I had a cheap hotel room in Singapore, £30 a night, which was quite low-end back then, whereas these days, well, I mean, I did book a dorm in, in Singapore for two nights when I was passing through there on the way to Sri Lanka. Essentially, my desire to travel cheaply became stronger than my desire to travel privately. I mean, sometimes the two merge. On my recent Interrail trip, I had dorms to myself for several nights in a couple of places, including Andorra and Leipzig. And that's kind of winning the backpacker lottery, isn't it? A private room for the price of a six-bed dorm. What about food? Well, I very rarely go to chain restaurants for main meals. Snacks, sometimes, yes. And I won't hear a word said against Greg's pasties and triple chocolate donuts. I could just do with one of those right now, actually. Apparently Greg's is keen to open up sooner rather than later, and there's one maybe a mile and a half away from me, plus the ones in the city centre which are only slightly further. But I've been good with my spending of late, so I shouldn't be tempted. Usually though, even these days, I'll eat street food, local cafes and, let's be honest, pubs. I eat in a lot of craft beer pubs. It's not necessarily healthy food, but a beer and a burger is much more my style than haute cuisine. That's not to say I don't go to posher restaurants. I was dragged to a couple when I was travelling last year with my friend Licks. And of course, regardless of where I go, I always try to eat something with a local bent. Be that a burger with local flavourings and style, or a small plate of pierogi, or, you know, deep-fried locust or something. All I mean is that my food is fairly low-key, just as it was when I was younger, and I wouldn't be seen dead in any place where people dressed up to go out to. Just because I'm now middle-aged doesn't mean I drink vintage wines and eat, I don't know, Steak Diane or something. So that's specifics about the way I travel, that I don't think have changed much, just finished a bit, and possibly reversed. What about the places I go to, and why do I go to them? Well, that's a hard one to judge, really. Many of my earlier travels were specifically to meet people, so I went to a lot of places that aren't really considered touristy, at least not for Brits. Because, well, everywhere is interesting, and even more so if you're in the company of a local who can show you a place the way they see it. Places like Michigan's Upper Peninsula, the small Finnish town of Kotka, and Athlone in the very centre of the Irish Republic. So while these trips were definitely on-brand, it was for a slightly different reason to now. I've always been attracted to unusual places, though, and my introversion and social anxiety have always made me shy away from places with too many crowds. That said, if I think about places I went to when I was just starting on my travel adventures, they included Krakow, known about and popular even in 1996 – Italy, like duh, and Chicago, also duh. I was going to these places because they sounded interesting to me, though, rather than because I felt a pressing need from society to go and see them. I don't think I've ever had a specific bucket list of places to see and experiences to have. Even in those early adventures, I was looking at places more with the eyes of, okay, so what's interesting? On my seminal trip to Southeast Asia in 2012, the only reason I went to the temples of Angkor is because I was passing by it on the way from seeing Pol Pot's grave, and it seemed weird not to as I was so close. My initial plans for Cambodia had me going nowhere near it and instead heading straight to Phnom Penh from Malau. What's perked my interest too, I don't think has changed much. The destinations may well have, as I've learnt new things about the world and realised that some place I'd never heard of absolutely fits my travel niche, but the overall reasons for visiting... I'm not sure they have. I've always had an interest in history, especially the bits of history we're not taught about and aren't so dour and academic. I've always, as you know, had an interest in maps, borders, the edge of the familiar, and I've always had one eye on the news. I can very, very vaguely remember Save Kampuchea charity slogans from the very early 80s. Obviously I remember well the Ethiopian famine and that bloody song. I grew up in the 80s when everything Soviet was both familiar and mysterious, so I've always had a passion for that whole region of the world, partly for challenging my own nostalgia. And then of course there's places like Timoleste, whose independent struggle was the student activist topic for my first year at university. So the idea of going to places I've only heard about, especially when all I've heard is negative, has always been strong with me and something that has driven my travels, even from my early adventures. Note, though, that while, as I say, one of my first trips was a cross-country trek to Belgrade to meet a pen pal, the fact that I had a pen pal in Belgrade at all is testament to my liking of places like that. Most people my age would have had a pen pal in somewhere like, you know, Germany, or France. I had a lot of pen pals, including one in France, who I've indirectly mentioned already on this podcast. But she's a whole different story that some of you know very well. Anyway... That's about all for this episode. Remember, I now have a Patreon that you can toddle along to and sign up for some bonus content, the bulk of which, at the moment, is a half-length podcast episode all about the islands of St Kilda. I'm going to try and put in some bonus content off of the back of every episode, but I may be delayed in this while I work out exactly what that bonus content will be. Next week's episode... Well, technically it's due to be another one of those deep and meaningful ones that goes into some political discussion, and I have two ideas in my mind... Both of them quite juicy, so we'll see. Watch this space. Until then, avoid the zombies, and if you're feeling off colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself, so I will understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Kirkby and Ashfield studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus, by Kai Engel which is available via the free music archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes of this podcast will be available on your podcast service of choice or alternatively go to my website barefoot If you want to contact me I live on Twitter at RTWBarefoot or email me at info at barefoot backpacker.com. Until next week, have safe journeys. Bye for now.